This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Yes, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. This is your host, Daryl McMullen. It is June 19th, 2023. Welcome back. Um, so might as well address the elephant in the room. Um, we, we have been on a slight hiatus, haven't we? Call it a, a break, call it a vacation, call it sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. But I think it's been three weeks, maybe four since the last episode came out. So this isn't typically something I like to do, right? I mean, we've talked about this before. Um, At the very beginning, I started every other week. Then very quickly, I moved to weekly, just because I had so many topics I wanted to, to work through that I knew I really had to do weekly podcast episodes in order to get it done. But life just catches up with you. You know, I mean, we, we did really well for a really long time, um, but, but more recently we've run into some snags. And so I guess I was just going to catch you up a little bit on what's been going on in my own life before we dive back into our, our series on eschatology. So here's my real life update. Um, my oldest daughter graduated from college. I think we've talked about this. That's been a couple months now. Um, but she graduated. We had a bunch of uh, family and friends in that weekend. Uh, and since then, she's moved down to San Diego and she's living her life, working full time, basically living her life. Um, a few weekends ago, my son graduated from high school. So we had, again, family and friends in for a while. Um, just a lot going on with that. And then my middle daughter, who is finishing up her junior year at in New York City. She flew home, and she's now home for a couple months for summer break. And so, yeah, all of that was kind of going on in the last couple of months, making work-life balance a little bit shaky, uh, I guess you would say. And then, to top it all off, um, for the past few months, we've also been frantically looking for a new house. That's right. During all of this other stuff, this has been going on in the background. Um, Our current lease is up at the end of this month, and we needed to find another place. So three to four years ago, um, this probably wouldn't have been such a big deal. Uh, But thanks to COVID and all of the real estate craziness that's uh, happened since then, and the fact that we live in Southern California, Orange County, um, this search is not for the faint of heart. Not only is inventory low, but prices obviously just keep going up higher and higher. So you put in applications and then you just don't hear back half the time. Uh, luckily, we had a few that that kind of dragged on and seemed to be potentials. Uh, eventually one worked out. So that means here in the next week or two, we will be moving. Crazy. So yeah, that's what's going on. That's the life update. I'm sure that... Um, I'm sure that my life is no different than any of yours. I'm sure many of you have similar life things going on. You feel like life's moving at 100 miles an hour, and you're basically just holding on to a blade of grass, trying not to fly off the face of the 
the earth, right? And we haven't even mentioned the state of the world, natural disasters, the fires in Canada, the political chaos, Trump being indicted again, uh, Florida continuing to move back into the Stone Age (laughs) under Ron DeSantis, all of those things, right? There's just so much going on right now, things that keep us a little off balance, uh, wondering what could possibly happen next which is probably why I decided to do this podcast series, right? So let's review where we've been so far. Episode one, the doomsday clock. Well, we discussed our social and cultural beliefs about the end of time, typically based on science and or entertainment, believe it or not. Episode two, the flip side, we dove into the end time beliefs that are based on spiritual or religious belief systems. Uh, and we really took a high-level look at some of the major world religions and what they believe about the end of time. Episode 3, Carrying the Torch, we discussed the history and origins of Christian eschatology and how it can literally be traced all the way from Adam and Eve to us today. Episode 4, Choosing Sides, we discussed the high-level categories that most Christians fall into when it comes to eschatology. And last time, we called it Making It Plain, and we jumped into some Bible passages that talk about the end of time in plain language that makes it very easy to understand. So today, we just head a bit further toward the deep end of the pool. Today's topic, Transcending Eschatology, Part 6, The Left Bookend. So this week, we're going to talk about a few things, but Chapter 1 is going to be the bookend theory. Chapter 2, Daniel's Stories, and Chapter 3, Crossing the Threshold. Chapter 1, The Bookend Theory. So the last time we met, uh, we discussed the fact that the Bible isn't silent about the end of time, right? It doesn't hide the truth that life isn't going to go on forever. In fact, it makes it pretty plain. We have yesterday, we have today, and the possibility of tomorrow. Possible because of the following two realities. First, the world could end tomorrow, right? We don't know. It could end tomorrow. It could end next week. It could end next month. We just don't know. And number two, the world could go on, but we could die tomorrow out of the blue, right? Cancer, brain tumor, car accident, heart attack, stroke. You don't know for sure when when your last day is on this earth. So in either scenario... It's basically the end of time or your end of time, right? And like we discussed, the Bible makes statements like this throughout the, throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We looked at numerous examples of this and how it's right there in plain language. Nothing is being hidden. Nothing is being inferred. The Bible starts with the process called creation. Then it walks through the history of the human race. And as it wraps up, it explains that our world will come to an end. Not in riddles, symbols, similes, metaphors, just plain old statements about Jesus coming back to earth. People being raised from the dead, people being caught up to meet their creator in the air. Now, for many people, this is okay. This is enough. That's all they need. They read this plain language stuff in the Bible and they're like, okay, I get it. It sounds good to me. Sounds like Jesus is coming back and he will save us from the pain and suffering that exists on this planet. I'm in sign me up, and that's fine. But the Bible also has other stuff, right? It has the riddles, the symbols, the similes, the metaphors. And many of us find that fascinating, that the Bible is very clear about the end of time, 
but then also provides this additional information that if we can just decode it, appears to go into great detail about the future and what's to come. It's called apocalyptic literature. And this is where all the variations come from, right? Like we discussed before, there are differences in the way people read prophecy. We talked about preterism, historicism, and futurism. People have different beliefs about the 1,000-year period discussed in prophecy. There are premillennials, postmillennials, and amillennials, right? Those are the three different beliefs about the millennium. And then finally, we have the different views about the rapture and the tribulation. We have pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. All things that we'll kind of get into a little bit as we continue to work through this series. However, this is the main reason that so many people are good with just stopping at the plain language scriptures, right? The plain language passages in the Bible, and then taking the Bible and putting it back on the shelf. Because nobody can agree on apocalyptic prophecy. It's the debated topic, often leading to divisions and conflict between people. So at the end of the day, what's the point, right? If we can't decisively or definitively say that one interpretation is right— why even get involved in it? Well, for me, or maybe just for my personality, this just doesn't work, right? Ambiguity doesn't keep me from it for some reason. I look at it like this. The fact that the Bible has this stuff in it must mean something. If I'm going to view the Bible as more than just a book full of encouraging stories, if I'm going to entertain the possibility that God played a role in the Bible being pulled together— I have to believe that he wanted this stuff to be in there for some reason. And that gets me excited on some level. Not that the Bible should function like the Da Vinci Code, right? Like a set of puzzles that we just decode and it leads us straight to absolute truth. I mean, I believe this is how we'll view it looking backward in hindsight. But for now, I still believe that there are things that we can decode in order to gain more insight into the future that awaits us. Look at it this way. We're all willing to read books, watch TV, and go to see movies that require us to suspend disbelief, right? Think about all the sci-fi and action movies where deep inside you're like, no, that would never happen in real life, right? And yet we laugh, get nervous, and we suspend that disbelief in order to be entertained. That's kind of the way I look at the Bible. Things are crazy in there, right? Things that we might lean forward and say, there's no way that could happen in real life. But what if we still read the whole thing and suspended our disbelief in order to get the whole experience, to hear the whole story, to know enough to start reading into the strange things, to try and interpret and decode in order to find little clues that we may have missed before? That's kind of me in a nutshell. In the past few years, I've really struggled through what I would consider a deconstruction process on some level, leaving behind many of the legalistic religious beliefs that were forced down my throat as a child, and then even as an adult in the evangelical Christian megachurch world. But all along, I held to my faith, my spiritual beliefs, a belief that God is our creator a belief that this person, Jesus Christ, is an actual person that actually lived on earth, and a belief that he is kind of the key to everything. And somewhere in there is this belief that the Bible is important as well. Maybe not infallible, I don't know, and probably not meant to be interpreted word for word. 
but important nonetheless, and containing things that no other ordinary book contains, something universal, something celestial, something divine even. So that's it. That's really my intro to apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible. As I've mentioned before, the Old Testament contains a lot of apocalyptic prophecy, but most of it appears to be situational or regional or specific to a group of people, spoken through prophets directly to the people based on their behavior and the bad choices they were making at the time. And while these prophecies talk about the future, they were often referring to the immediate future. To be a little crass, these prophecies were the F around and find out type prophecies. We hear that a lot in the news today, F around and find out, which means play in this sandbox and eventually you're going to get sand in your face (laughs) or sand in your eyes or something, right? Screw around and find out. And that's kind of the way I look at these Old Testament prophecies. The prophet was saying to the people, if you keep doing this thing, if you keep engaging in this behavior, eventually you're going to find out. And what you find out isn't going to be fun. It's not going to be good, right? But buried deep within these Old Testament prophecies or prophets was one that really stood out, right? There's a book that just doesn't seem to fit among the others, and that's the book of Daniel. Now, I referred to this last week as the sister book to Revelation, and that the two of them together almost act like bookends, containing the overarching story told by prophecy and holding all of the plain language stuff in between them. So playing off of this idea that these two books are bookends, I would refer to Daniel as the left bookend. So that's where we're going to start. Chapter 2, Daniel's Stories. So using the swimming pool analogy, um, we were in the kiddie pool last week, up to our ankles, up to our knees, basically talking about end time stuff in plain language, right? But when we get to Daniel, we, we've kind of left the kiddie pool and we're walking over to the adult pool. Now we're going down the steps and before you know it, the water is up past our knees and it's getting quite close to our bathing suit. That's where we find ourselves when Daniel starts telling his stories. Now we don't have time to fully flesh this out, but once you've read the stories in Daniel, you'll realize that they all have a similar plot and theme. They all have to do with one thing worship. For many people, this is a churchy word that probably means very little to them. Uh, But for those of you who grew up a Christian, it's really the glue that holds everything together, right? It was the word that we used to describe our connection to God. You went to church to worship God. When you sang songs in church, you were worshiping. And when you were away from the church and you were living a moderate and clean lifestyle, it was an act of what? Worship. See what I mean? Worship was everything. Worship was the way you maintained this connection to God. If this topic interests you, um, I believe we did an entire episode on it during the Controversy Theory series. I think it was episode five called To Be Human is to Worship. I put a link in the show notes if you want to hit that up and learn more about worship. So for now, I'm just going to summarize some of the high-level stuff that we talked about in that episode just to keep us moving. So in that episode, we discussed that to be human was to worship, that something deep inside of us wants there to be something bigger than ourselves, something that we can pursue or something that we can look up to. 
And this desire really comes out in many ways, but typically it comes out in one of three categories, sincere worship, token worship, or worldly worship. So sincere worship is what I would consider worshiping God or worshiping our creator. It's true worship, right? It's worship that comes from our hearts. There's no hidden agenda, no ulterior motives. We're not just doing it because other people are doing it. This type of worship comes from somewhere deep inside, and it has to do with us fully understanding who God is, that he created us, that he saves us from the sin virus, and that life just wouldn't make sense without him in it. It's living each and every day knowing that he is the reason that we get out of bed every morning. Number two is token worship. Now, this can look a lot like the real thing at times, but it often falls short of sincere worship because we're just playing a game. Maybe we grew up in church, and so it's just part of our routine. Maybe it's to look good in front of others. Maybe one of our significant others asked us to worship with them and we're just kind of going along with it so that they won't dump us, right? Whatever the scenario, the common theme here is that the worship is not really connected to our heart. This worship is more of an outward display for the benefit of others, more so than direct connection with the Creator. And then finally, we have worldly worship. So as you can imagine, this is everything else, anything else we would worship or idolize, Right? The simple way to explain this category is to say anything we worship that isn't God. Pretty straightforward, right? I mean, when you start working through this list, it's pretty obvious. We can worship money, career, power, fame, material possessions, food, shopping, gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And then there are some things that actually seem good on the outside, but can potentially be worldly worship. So things like our kids exercise, health, cleanliness. All of these things are good, right? And in moderation, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. However, if one of these things becomes our entire world, our entire focus, it can actually be considered a form of worship, right? Worshiping a spouse, a child, our family. Uh, when it comes to exercise, basically worshiping ourself, right? What we look like, what we present to other people. Again, you know, none of these things are bad. None of these things are wrong. The suggestion here is is really more that an activity, a healthy, positive, good activity, if taken too far, can cross the line and become worship. Something that really, according to the Bible, according to God, is set aside for him. Now, Another thing we touched on was how to tell if something is reaching that level, right? How do we know when something is more than just an activity and it's something we're actually idolizing or something we're worshiping? So we walked through this thing called the worship quiz. Now, this is a very simple assessment to identify if we might be elevating something to worship status in our lives. It's pretty straightforward. Ask yourself three questions. First, what do I spend a large amount of money on? Two, what do I spend a large amount of time doing? And finally, what do I spend a large amount of time thinking about? Money, time, and thought, right? And if you're honest with yourself, these questions should immediately start formulating a list for you. And that brings us back to Daniel and the fact that every single one of the stories in his book have to do with worship. The first question should be, why? Why would he tell all of those stories and why would they all have worship 
at the core. Because Daniel is kicking off apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible. But first, before he does, he wants to tell you a bunch of stories to help get you warmed up, right? To, to ease you in slowly and help you understand that there is something bigger going on here. Yes, I'm going to tell you all these things about the end of time, but I want you to understand that at the heart of it is a relationship with God and what we've, how we view him and how we worship him. So keeping that in mind, here we go. Seven quick stories about Daniel, his friends, the king, and life in Babylon. Story number one, Daniel and his friends. So our story begins when Babylon captures Israel. Daniel and his friends were taken captive, but they were allowed to work for the king since they were part of the Israelite nobility. They were forced to eat what the king ate, the king's court, and everyone in his palace ate a certain way. And so they were asked to eat the same food as those people. However, they requested that they be allowed to eat foods that they grew up on, foods that they believed were better for them. The king granted their request, but only for a set amount of time. He would test all of the members of his court at that time to see if it made any difference. Now, why is this a story of worship? Strangely enough, it's about food. To these Israelite boys, what they ate was very important because they believed that God had asked them to observe very specific eating standards. To them, eating was an act of worship, and going against it would be choosing to worship the food instead of the God who made the food. Now, the outcome of the story, not that it matters, um, but at the end of the time period, Daniel and his friends were healthier and did better in their studies than everyone else based on the king's test. And because of this, Daniel and his friends ascended in the court hierarchy and achieved positions of authority because of that one small choice that they had made. Story number two, Daniel and the king's dream. So King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream, and he wanted to know what it meant. So he asked all of his magicians, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what the dream meant. However, he did it in such a way to make sure that they weren't lying to him. So not only did they ask for the interpretation of the dream, but he asked them to tell him what he dreamt. Now, of course, none of them were able to do this. And so the king basically was like, well, then you're all dead because you're supposed to be my smartest people and you can't answer my questions, so I'm going to kill you all. But Daniel explained that God could tell the king the dream if he would just give him some time to do it. So God revealed the dream to Daniel and the interpretation of the dream. Now, why is this a story of worship? Well, the question is, who are you actually worshiping? The magicians, sorcerers, and astrologers were worshiping dark forces, things that could not even tell them the future or the king's dream. But Daniel was worshiping the true God, the one true God. And who was eventually able to tell the king his dream? Daniel, because God told him. Now, Daniel could have told the king that he had the power to reveal the king's dream, but instead he chose sincere worship by giving credit to God. Daniel was simply the messenger. Now, the outcome of this story, again, not that it matters, but Daniel continued to serve in the court of the king and had a high level of power and authority that others could not achieve. Story number three. 
the fiery furnace. So because of the dream that Daniel revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king became very nervous, and he decided to build a giant statue of himself. And he made it all of gold, because in his dream, his statue was made of different metals all the way down. And those metals referred to other um, other civilizations basically coming in the future. He wanted to build himself a statue that was all gold to show that he would live forever or that his civilization would carry on forever. His kingdom would never end. Then he required that everyone in the kingdom stop what they were doing and worship the statue. If they didn't, they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, Daniel had three close friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these were Israelites like Daniel, and they believed that it was wrong to worship anything other than their creator. So, of course, they refused. When the king asked everyone to bow down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were left standing. So the king had them thrown into the fiery furnace, which was so hot that it killed the men who threw them in. Again, why is this a story of worship? Well, this should be pretty straightforward, right? Will you worship God, or will you worship something that somebody else tells you to worship? Now, the outcome of this story matters a lot, right? When the three men were thrown into the fiery furnace, God actually protected them. He kept them alive. They literally walked around in the flames until the king told them to come out. And the Bible even explains that while the three of them were in there, God appeared and stood with them so that the king saw four men inside of the fiery furnace. Now, how crazy would that be, right? An immediate validation that you made the right decision and were worshiping sincerely. Story number four, the fall of the king. So this story is a little weird, right? King Nebuchadnezzar always struggled with his allegiance. There were moments where he almost turned and worshiped Daniel's God, especially after seeing things like the fiery furnace situation. But ultimately, his pride got the best of him. The position that he held, the power that he had just caught up with him. And one night, he was looking out over his balcony, over his entire kingdom, and he said this, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? <laughs> uh, anyways, I don't know where that voice came from. But that's what he said. Now, why is this story about worship? Well, the main issue here is the worship of self, right? The fact that we can get so prideful that we actually worship ourselves. So the question is, are we going to worship the creator or are we going to worship ourselves? Now, the outcome of this story mattered a lot as well. According to the story, no sooner had those words left the king's mouth that he ceased to be human. It kind of suggests that he lost his mind and almost became like a wild animal, left the kingdom and went out into the fields and lived with the animals for seven years. Now, the interesting thing <laughs> to me is that God allowed his kingdom to continue on for those seven years, almost like in a holding pattern. And then, after the seven years, the king regained his mind and began worshiping God. Crazy enough, his kingdom was restored to him. Story number five, Belshazzar and the Drunken Feast. 
So later in life, King Nebuchadnezzar was probably getting tired of palace life, so he started to travel and do other things. And during those travels, he left his kingdom in the hands of Belshazzar. Now, I'm guessing Belshazzar was loving this newfound power, right? So at some point, while the cat was away, the mouse decided to play. Belshazzar called all of the important people together, and they threw a massive party, which included a lot of what? Drinking, partying, um, who knows what was happening, right? But during this party, uh, Belshazzar said, hey, we're worshiping the Babylonian gods, and What we should also do is we should also mock the God of the Israelites. So go get the sacred goblets that we took from Israel and from their temple and bring them here and let's use them during the party. Now, why is this a story about worship? Well, a couple things seem to be going on in this story. Obviously, there was a lot of worldly worship going on, right, in terms of drinking, gluttony, debauchery, all of those things. Uh, But there was also self-worship in that Belshazzar was worshiping himself just like Nebuchadnezzar had. And to top it off, he was making fun of the one true God. Now, the outcome of this story is also very important because during the party, a large hand appeared and wrote words on the wall for everyone to see. They couldn't read the words, so Daniel was called in to interpret the words. When Daniel came and explained the words, he said they meant, Babylon will fall this very night. Belshazzar just laughed and went back to partying, but that night it actually happened. Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians in a sneak attack. Chapter 6, or story number 6, Daniel and the Lion's Den. So this is one everyone probably knows, right? When the Medes and the Persians took over, King Darius kept people like Daniel around, probably because he had a reputation for being smart and because he was able to interpret dreams. And over time, the king grew to really like and trust Daniel, just like Nebuchadnezzar had. And because of this, the others in the palace began to dislike Daniel, right? They became jealous and eventually hatched a plot to get rid of him. So these men convinced the king to sign a decree that everyone in the kingdom should worship the king for 30 days. Anyone choosing not to do so would be thrown in a den of lions. Now, these men knew that Daniel would never worship the king, right? So they simply waited for him to open his window and pray to his God. Then they took some pictures on their cell phones and they ran back to the king with the evidence. Now, the worship in this story is pretty obvious, right? Will you worship the one true God, or will you worship an earthly God in the form of a man or a king in this case? Now, the outcome of this story, again, very important, very important to Daniel, very important to the king. The king was heartbroken, and he was so angry that he had been fooled by members of his own court. And yet, in that kingdom, a decree by the king could not be changed. A law was a law, so he had to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den in order to ensure that laws were seen as important and unchangeable. According to the story, that night God sent angels into the lion's den to shut the mouths of the lions and to not harm Daniel. Crazy, right? I mean, you just picture Daniel laying down there with his head on one of the lions, getting the most amazing night's sleep. In the morning, the king rushed to the lion's den. Uh, He had the stone rolled away from the entrance, and he called to Daniel, assuming the worst. But then Daniel walked into the light, safe and sound. 
The king was ecstatic, but also pretty ticked off at the men who had framed Daniel. So he had the other men thrown into the lion's den for their behavior. Unfortunately for those men, the angels had already gone, and the lions were once again very hungry. Story number seven, Daniel's prayer. So the final story in the book of Daniel isn't really a story at all. It's a prayer that Daniel prays to the one true God after being shown the future. No doubt, Daniel was probably scared to death and just saddened by what he had seen, the violence, the destruction, and the pain that would eventually come upon the earth. So he prayed in a way that we would recognize as sincere worship. Prayer, literally talking to the one who created him. And the outcome of this prayer was amazing for Daniel because because of his sincere worship, God sent an angel to comfort him. The angel told Daniel that he was greatly beloved, and it was an amazing end to a life of faithfulness and sincere worship. Chapter 3, Crossing the Threshold. So we basically just walked through seven stories that set the stage for what's coming. But these stories aren't the only thing Daniel wrote down. In fact, as we read through the stories, we were actually skipping over a big piece of apocalyptic prophecy. Because remember, we talked about Daniel being the left bookend, introducing us to apocalyptic prophecy, the kind that looks forward to the end of days, the end of the world itself. And our first taste of this comes in Daniel 2, because it's part of a story which I find fascinating. Why? Well, remember the conversation we keep having about the Bible and whether or not it's inerrant, important, or simply inspiring. This, for me, is one of the reasons that I can't go all the way down the road and say that the Bible is just a book of fiction, just full of encouraging stories made up by humans. Because I don't believe Daniel was attempting to create a work of fiction here. He is documenting very real people and very real events in his stories, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to King Darius, or Darius, however you say it. Uh, But these are historical figures that reigned over civilizations that really existed. And now the overlap with the divine, the part that really fascinates me. So King Nebuchadnezzar, right, who was a very real person in history, has a dream Nobody can interpret the dream because the king can't even remember it. So Daniel, because he's connected to God, the God who created all things, not only told him the dream, but also gave him the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel goes back and tells the king what God told him, and it becomes the left bookend of apocalyptic prophecy. It takes us from historical information all the way down to the end of time. This dream starts out telling the king what was happening right then and there. Next, it tells the king what was coming after that. And finally, it tells us what will happen at the end of time. Not because Daniel was such a good fiction author, but because God intervened, because God was weaving all of this together behind the scenes. By the way, where do you think the original dream came from? The one that the king actually had. Too much wine? Bad sushi? No, the king had that specific dream because God showed it to him, because God allowed him to have the dream. 
Now, those who don't believe that the Bible is important in any way can still push back on this, right? Because it's not airtight. Historical records tell us that there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar and that he ruled over Babylon. And there may even be historical records confirming that Daniel lived and that he was part of the king's court. But historical records probably won't confirm that the king had this dream or that Daniel was able to interpret it. So because of that, people can still say, oh, the writings of Daniel are just a combination of historical fact and inspiring fiction. But again, for me, this is where the rubber meets the road. Too many things all lining up for it to just be happenstance. At the end of the day, my logical brain understands that there has to be something more to this than just good literature. Okay, got a little off track there, so let's get back to the dream and our first taste of apocalyptic prophecy. Now, remember, the king wanted two things, right? He asked the wise men in the court to tell him what he dreamed because he wanted to make sure that they actually had the ability, but then he also wanted to know what the dream meant and why it had been so impactful for him. And because none of his wise men could tell him the dream to begin with, he made a decree that all of them should be killed. But just before it happened, Daniel stepped in and he said, Yo, king, what's going on? (laughs) You know, calm, calm your jets. Just give me some time so that I can pray and ask God for the information. So Daniel was granted the time, and God honored him by telling him both the dream and the interpretation. Now, I'm not going to try to tell the story. I'm just going to read it straight out of Daniel's mouth. Daniel 2, 31 to 35. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its belly and thighs were of bronze. Its legs were of iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not with human hands. And it struck the feet of iron and clay and smashed them into bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind came, and it blew them all away without a trace like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the entire earth. That was part one. That was the retelling of the dream. In part two, Daniel hands over the interpretation. Daniel 2, 36 to 45. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty... You are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are this head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom, inferior to yours, will rise up to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen... Yet a third, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. 
The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of its strength of iron, but some parts will be as clay, as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reign of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these other kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what would happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Crazy, right? <laughs> so there you have it. Your first taste of apocalyptic stuff. Now, we don't have to be rocket scientists to figure out the real-world application of this prophecy. All we have to do is go back to the ancient civilizations unit in our history books, and it should be obvious. We know where to start because Daniel told the king where to start. In verse 38, he tells the king, you are the head of gold. So here are the civilizations that Daniel predicted in his interpretation. The head of gold was Babylon. The chest and arms of silver were the Medes and the Persians. Interesting, right? That the section, this section of the statue has two arms, and it was a shared or divided kingdom. I just find that fascinating. Um, the belly and the thighs are of bronze. This was Greece. And then the legs of iron are Rome. And then the feet that are part iron and part clay are called the divided kingdom. And then finally, you have the rock that was cut from the mountain called the forever kingdom that we know is God, right? When God comes back and takes over and rules everything. Now, how do we know these things? Well, it's simple. In that part of the world, history tells us that these were the civilizations that ruled one after the other until the fall of Rome in 476 AD. And what happened to the Roman Empire? Well, people view it differently, but according to the Newton Project out of Oxford University, there were 10 kingdoms that Rome broke into. These 10 kingdoms were the Vandals, the Suavians, the Visigoths, the Alans, the Burgundians, the Franks, the Britons, the Huns, the Lombards, and the Ravenna. Now, some of these, like the Franks and the Britons, obviously exist to this day as France and Great Britain, but others were renamed, named, combined, split, or overtaken, and eventually culminated in many of the European countries that we have today. So when it comes to the interpretation of Daniel's prophecy, most Christians agree on this one, right up until that fourth kingdom. So here's how it breaks down based on the way people understand Bible prophecy. So let's start with the historicists. Historicists typically interpret Daniel 2 the way that I just described it. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then Rome breaks into 10 kingdoms that exist for, in some form or fashion until the end of time. At the end of time, the rock that's cut out of the mountain refers to Jesus' second coming, and him setting up his forever kingdom. Now, if I were a preterist, 
preterists typically interpret Daniel 2 this way. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. However, they assume that the Ten Kingdoms were actually included in the original Roman civilization. In other words, they believe that the Roman Empire actually had ten distinct elements in it while it ruled as a civilization. Believing this then suggests that when Jesus came back the first time, that that signified the rock cut out of the mountain that destroyed all other civilizations. And then you have futurists. And I believe that futurists typically interpret Daniel 2 the way that historicists do, though there may be some differences in the beliefs about the Ten Kingdoms and what is actually referred to in the Ten Kingdoms. So there you go. This is really the start of the deep end, my friends. There's no turning back now. Uh, We've waded into the water, and now we're up past our belly buttons. So Daniel basically helps us make that transition from plain language stuff to the wading pool to the Olympic-sized swimming pool with his first piece of apocalyptic prophecy. But he has more on the way. So let's land the plane on this episode. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the time. Uh, We've definitely moved from plain language into the more abstract apocalyptic stuff. Uh, But hopefully you've followed along and you're ready for this next step. The next time we meet, we're going to dive into the rest of Daniel's prophetic passages, and we're going to see how that left bookend hands things off to the right, the book of Revelation. You know, guys, I say it often, but only because I really mean it. I love that you chose to be here today, and I love that we get to go on this journey together. So that said, have a great week, friends, and until next time, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.